Welcome back to the program. When something goes wrong with a car or an appliance or even the human body, the instructions for repair are often clear. However, the manual that tries to define the parameters and terms of mental illness is without that kind of scientific basis. Even an auto repair manual arguably has more. Yet with the fifth volume of DSM and the concurrent explosion in psychotropic drugs, doctors are seemingly relying on it more than ever. And in fact, it may be detrimental to taking care of our mental health. Leading the criticism of the latest volume of DSM, DSM DSM-5, is a man who was one of the purveyors of the previous work, DSM-4. He is Dr. Alan Francis. Part of his criticism is that we're over-diagnosing and sometimes making normal into something that needs to be over-treated. His book is just out in paperback. It's entitled Saving Normal, and it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Alan Francis to the program today. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to have you here. How fundamentally different is DSM-4 from DSM-5? Well, I think we are already in a really bad situation with uh, diagnostic exuberance and the um, over-treatment of people who don't really need it. DSM-5 makes all this worse because it adds a whole bunch of, of new diagnoses and reduces some of the thresholds for existing ones. So it allows grief to be mislabeled uh, major depressive disorder. It um, will result in the overdiagnosis of pre-dementia. It makes binge eating into a mental disorder. Um, it makes it easier for kids to get the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder and especially for adults to get the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder when we already have a massive overdiagnosis and overtreatment with um, stimulant medication. So I think in general, we're already uh, in a situation of diagnostic inflation and DSM-5 threatens to make it uh, diagnostic hyperinflation. Which was it, as we look at how this evolved, kind of the chicken or the egg, is is the overinflation of some of these diagnoses in DSM-5 what is causing overdiagnosis by clinicians, or is it the other way around or some combination of the two? Well, I think the diagnostic system is too loose, and DSM-5 makes it looser. But the bigger problem, the societal force driving all this, uh, the, the gorilla in the room, is the pharmaceutical industry. In the U.S., Big Pharma has a right that they have not been able to extract anywhere else in the world except New Zealand, and that is to advertise directly to consumers. And they flood the airwaves, they flood Internet and and magazines and print media with with, um, advertisements misleadingly trying to convince everyone that psychiatric illness is underdiagnosed, that's real easy to diagnose, that's always caused by a chemical imbalance, and the uh, the natural way of curing a chemical imbalance is to take a pill. So the strategy of Big Pharma, and that's a strategy that has tens of billions of dollars behind it, is to sell the psychiatric ill in order to peddle their pills. Uh, they've been remarkably successful in saturating the market. And part of the strategy has been to go after the the primary care doctors. 80% get that. 80% of psychiatric medicines are prescribed by primary care doctors. Usually after a seven-minute visit, heavily influenced by drug company salesmen, patients trying to come in asking for a pill. Samples on the shelf, free samples on the shelf. So everything has been greased to make it really easy for people to be labeled and to label themselves as mentally ill and to take a pill as the solution. The result is that one in five Americans takes a psychiatric medicine on a regular basis. 
one-fifth of our population on psychiatric medicine. And often this is unnecessary. They would have gotten um, just the, the same results without medicine, um, trusting to time, to natural healing, resilience, family support, change in life circumstance. But once you take a pill and you feel better, you don't know that you would have felt better anyway, and the tendency is to stay on it even if it's unnecessary. And here's the cruel paradox, really cruel paradox. While we're over-treating people who don't need it to their detriment, we're horribly neglecting the people who do. We diagnose in this country maybe a quarter of the population as having a mental disorder. Only 5% have a really severe mental disorder. And because we're focusing so much attention on people who have mild problems or just the problems of everyday life, we're providing very inadequate resources to the people who desperately need it. And as a result, we have one million psychiatric patients in prison for nuisance crimes that could have been easily avoided had they been treated in the community. We have hundreds of thousands of homeless people. So we have a disastrous and shameful neglect of the needy while we're over-treating people, or many of whom are the worried well. Just as we're over-treating in part because of the pressures from Big Pharma, to what extent are we under-treating and do the other problems exist as a result of, of insurance companies and the insurance system that we have? Well, I think that there's been an improvement in terms of providing parity of care for, for mental illness, but this affects only the people who have milder problems. The people who have severe problems are funded in a different mechanism, and that mechanism has been failing them terribly over the last 40 years, and particularly in the last four or five years, where $4 billion have been cut. We've drastically cut the number of psychiatric beds in this country by about half a million in the last 30 or 40 years, but we've increased the number of prison beds by the exact same amount. So instead of treating people in hospitals, those hospitals were often no bargain, but they were a lot better than putting psychiatric patients in prison where they're vulnerable. 200,000 prisoners are raped a year in the U.S., and many of them are psychiatric patients. Psychiatric patients often wind up in solitary, which can drive anyone nuts. And for a person with a mental illness, it's really a trigger to disastrous decompensations. So we should be doing a very simple thing. We should be treating people who need it in the community with ready access to care and a decent place to live, not imprisoning them. be a lot cheaper. And that's what the rest of the world, the civilized world does. We're in a unique position of spending fortunes on um, treatments that are unnecessary and depriving people of adequate care as it could actually in the, in the long run wind up saving us money because we'd be reducing our ridiculously bloated prison budget. Given that, why haven't we seen more pushback from psychiatric clinicians? It's a great question. It's not just psychiatric clinicians. It's um, the professional associations, the National Institute of Mental Health, the um, federal government's programs for mental health. Everyone is pushing for more mental health services for the mildly ill. And no one cares about the severely, very few people care about the severely ill. They're the neglected uh, stepchildren of the system. We've reduced the stigma of having a psychiatric disorder for most people. Taking a psychiatric medicine used to be seen as a big shame. Now it's every day. So many people are doing it. 20% of the population is taking a psychiatric medicine. takes the shame out of it. At the same time, we've increased the stigma to having a severe illness. And I recently um, did a blog on the, the fact, is this the worst time ever to, and the worst place to have a severe mental illness? 
that with all the scientific advances in neuroscience, we're actually um, managing people with severe mental illness uh, just as badly now in the U.S. as they were managed 200 years ago when prison and homelessness was the fate of many patients. It's now once again the fate of many patients. The National Institute of Mental Health has almost no budget devoted to research and model programs to get patients out of prisons and to improve life in the community for them. Its total emphasis is on biological research. And I'm all for neuroscience research, but we have to admit that it hasn't so far improved the life of patients. The brain is the most complicated thing in the known universe. We've learned a tremendous amount about neuroscience and genetics. We will learn a tremendous amount more in the future. But so far, there's been no translational payoff to the lives of people with severe mental illness. I don't think that there's going to be a quick Grand Slam home run in understanding severe mental illness. I think we have to do the things that will improve patients' lives now. And so far, there's precious little advocacy for this very, very um, neglected and um, stigmatized group. Just to some extent, we're talking about two very distinct problems. Talk about what you see as the nexus between the overtreating of of these moderate illnesses and and the inflation in that regard that you're talking about, and the areas where we're seeing so much neglect. Is there a cause and effect relationship between the two? Well, dollars are fungible, and if we're spending $18 billion a year in an enormously bloated amount on antipsychotics, many people who don't need the antipsychotics are receiving them, and especially in children and in the elderly. They've been given out almost like candy. At the same time, the people who do need antipsychotics can't get an appointment. So the money is being spent in the wrong place. Also, a lot of the dollars being spent in mental health for medications might be better spent um, in, in other ways. For instance, we're spending almost $10 billion a year now on drugs for attention deficit disorder. $10 billion a year. At the same time, there's been an increase in class size in schools and a reduction in uh, gym periods, physical education. It turns out that lots of kids who get the diagnosis of ADD are really just normal kids who are active. The best predictor of getting an ADD diagnosis is your birthday. If you're the youngest kid in the class, you're almost twice as likely to get the diagnosis as the oldest kid in the class. We've turned childhood and immaturity into a disease. Now, wouldn't it be better to be spending some of that $10 billion on better school services, more gym classes, smaller class size? We're turning what's basically an educational problem into a medical, that affects the whole you know, classroom environment, into a specific medical disorder for just some of the kids who can least well adjust to the environment, and then spending the money in all the wrong places. So there's a massive, I think, national misallocation of resources, largely due to the commercialization of psychiatry, which is just a, a special case of America's commercialization of all of medical practice. Talk a little bit about what we're seeing on a governmental level in terms of the National Institutes of Mental Health and various other federal agencies, the way they're viewing this and the way it's tied into some of what we're talking about. Well, the two agencies most involved in this, um, one of them is SAMHSA and the other is the NIMH. Each of the, the uh, SAM, SAMHSA has more of a... Um, service orientation, the NIMH has a research orientation, but each of these 
has sort of uh, head in the sand that the, the services are being um, funded more for um, the, the worried well and the mildly ill with a tremendous neglect for the severely ill. And the research is directed almost exclusively to a um, neuroscience and genetics budget that, that may pay off, but it's going to pay off in small pieces over many, many decades. When it comes to understanding uh, mental disorders, brain being as complicated as it is, the secrets are elusive and not easily revealed. And my guess is there'll be very few Grand Slam home runs where we suddenly have, oh, we know what schizophrenia is all about. There'll be lots of strikeouts, very few walks, and at best we're going to have a bunch of singles along the way. We shouldn't expect the neuroscience research to pay off in any major way in the short term. So what we have to do is take stock of ourselves as a nation and say, you know, if, if a society is judged by how it treats its most uh, vulnerable people, we're getting an S, and we have to reprioritize. We have to control the drug companies. We have to uh, reorganize how insurance is done. And most of all, we have to make sure there's adequate funding to get those people who are currently in prison or homeless on the streets back into the community and in decent housing. To some extent, isn't this part of a larger problem in terms of the over-medicalization of so many things, both physical as well as mental health issues? Oh, yeah. I just did a great meeting in, in, in uh, Melbourne. It's an international network of uh, guideline creators across all of medicine. There's only psychiatrists there. And this problem of over-diagnosing and over-treating the, the normal and sometimes neglecting the severely ill is a uh, problem across all medical specialties, and it's increasingly a problem in many parts of the world. It's not just the United States problem, although we're the worst. So we've dumbed down the definition of diabetes, hypertension, osteoporosis, any number of disorders, and um, are providing testing and, and treatment for them in, in situations where these may be much more detrimental to the patient than helpful and where it's a terrific waste of public dollars. We in the United States spend almost twice as much on medical care as other comparable countries, and we get lousy results. And the outcome measures on a whole variety of, of um, parameters. turns out that we, we don't really have a good national system of health care. It's a completely chaotic commercial system that produces terrible outcomes at ridiculous costs. And what these guideline makers are doing is saying we have to redefine how we uh, consider illness. We have to make sure that before we make it easier to call someone sick and test them for it, that there's a reason for it. We have to reevaluate the screening tests, like the best example is prostate. Uh, not too long ago, all men of a certain age were told, get your test every year, mm -hmm. be on top of your prostate because it can kill you with cancer. It turns out that except for people at high risk, getting tested is a real problem. You're going to die at the same age with or without testing. But if you do get the testing, you're likely to be treated for prostate cancer that wouldn't have caused you much harm, but the treatments will be absolutely devastating. And so the, sometimes we can know too much about our bodily functions and wind up treating phantom illnesses that are just incidental to living with treatments that are invasive and cause the person much more harm than good. Do we need to be approaching this 
from a money point of view, I mean, you were talking before about the, the finite numbers of dollars that are available and where we're putting those resources. Do we need to be addressing this strictly from an economic perspective, or do we need to sort of readdress and rethink the whole issue of mental health in this country? Well, I think the, the two go together. It, 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 it's... Um we're to come up with a rational system of mental health care or medical care in general. We have to think about the harms and benefits and the costs of each of the decisions we make. And at this point, diagnostic decisions are probably more important than, than uh, differences in treatment uh, uh, suggestions. That we, through a very slight change in how you define a mental disorder or a physical disorder, you can suddenly make five or ten million people sick who previously were considered normal. That um, the, uh, the definitions have a tremendous power in determining how people's lives will be lived. And the, the treatments be, are not just expensive, but they're often harmful and noxious. So I think that we can't let the experts call the shots because experts always have an intellectual and emotional conflict of interest, even if they don't have a financial conflict of interest. They always have the interest in expanding the territory of their disorder, whether this is in psychiatry or anywhere in medicine. Most of the recommendations for defining disease and defining treatments come from professional associations that will always tend to expand the, the borders of their particular territory. We have to sort of get some adult supervision in this process and have our guidelines, our definitions determined not by the people who are most likely to um, expand a, uh, a balloon that's already bloated, rather to realize that we need much more specific in who we diagnose and much more specific in how we recommend treatment. And how does DSM-5 fit into this? And is this something that's going to be addressed or, or in some way looked at within the context of future DSM versions? Well, I think that the DSM-5 has opened the floodgates that were already you know, way too open. And um, the drug companies are already jumping on it, trying to get doctors to see um, major depressive disorder when really people are just having the normal experience of grief. In, in DSM-5, if you lose the person you love the most in the whole world, and two weeks later, you feel sad, lost interest, your appetite's not as good, you're not sleeping as well, don't have quite as much energy, that would be called major depressive disorder. And um, it, it reduces the dignity of love and, and loss and uh, subjects people to, to treatments that make no sense and substitutes a, a superficial medical ritual for a meaningful um, respect for the love loss. That kind of medicalization of, of normal life is something that the drug companies love and they're beginning to have their salesmen go out to doctors and say, have you been careful evaluating major depressive disorder in, in your bereaved patients? You know, it's in DSM-5 that you can get the diagnosis with just these symptoms. Um, they're beginning to uh, publicize the fact that stimulant drugs may be helpful for this newly invented disorder, binge eating disorder. And uh, we'll try to convince lots of people who are overweight that they have binge eating disorder and they need to be taking diet pills. And again, we, we uh, in area after area, the tendency is always to expand the system, to worry about the missed patient, and to never worry about the um, risks of mislabeling people. That once you get the label, it's very hard to get rid of it and that the treatments given may be um, more harmful than helpful. I think it's very important for consumers 
to become educated, um, both about how the diagnoses are made, the fact that there's a tendency now towards um, too much diagnosis, the fact that you can never make an accurate diagnosis in seven minutes uh, in a primary care doctor's office. You should never take free samples because that means that the whole system is being driven too commercially. And if a diagnosis doesn't fit, it's very important that you uh, question it, that you get second opinions. I wouldn't want anyone listening to stop their medicine based on what I'm saying, because very often, um, sometimes the medicine will be necessary, and very often there'll be harmful withdrawal symptoms if you stop medicine precipitously. So it, it's always important to get second opinions, to do it under medical supervision, and to do it slowly. It's better to stop psychiatric medicine over the course of, we of weeks or months rather than doing it over the course of days. What, if anything, can be done about the over-prescribing by primary care physicians? Well, the first thing is to tame Big Pharma, that they just basically control Washington. And um, the first step is to just wipe away this um, unique situation of dominance of um, public public airways they have in the U.S. that no one else in the rest of the world except New Zealand would let Big Pharma advertise. They should just be restricted from advertising. Their ability to market to doctors should be markedly reduced to corruption of doctors with resort trips and, and fancy meals and um, consultantships. We need to decommercialize, not just in psychiatry, but of course all medicine. We need to decommercialize medicine. Uh, this is not a free market. The drug companies, is amazing. I think the, the uh, outrages are so amazing that there will be a backlash, not just in psychiatry. But of course, medicine. the latest one that's amazing is the hepatitis C treatment. In the U.S., to get the hep C pill, you have to shell out a thousand dollars a pill, one thousand bucks a pill. A complete course of treatment, eighty-four thousand dollars. In Egypt, you can get the same treatment for nine hundred dollars, nine hundred said eighty-four thousand, and they're making money on the nine hundred. In the U.S., the drug companies have a monopoly on pricing. And it really becomes your money or your life that they can charge whatever they want and people and, and are desperate to pay for it. And insurance companies are forced to shell out. I think this kind of overreach, the greedy overreach, the, um, the fact that about 12 companies have been fined a billion dollars or more in the last decade for um, false advertising, fraudulent practices. I think that sooner or later, um, the drug industry is going to take the same fall that the tobacco industry took. Big Tobacco ruled the world 25 years ago. They've been humbled and controlled because they were so outrageous. And I think the same thing is going to happen with the pharmaceutical industry. It's going to take time, but there's only so much the public will bear. And as the press has become much more aware of this and investigative, um, as the medical journals are beginning to take on the problem of overdiagnosis across all specialties, I think that public awareness will eventually control the companies. Has the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, done anything to address any of these issues, either positively or negatively? Well, the Affordable Care Act had, within the original versions, much more uh, ability to control the excesses and the irrationalities of, of care. But it was watered down to get past the commercial interests were given all sorts of concessions that make it less powerful. It includes, the Affordable Care Act includes parity for psychiatric treatment so that it's, it's judged along the same lines as medical treatment. That's to the good. But it will have no impact at all on the severely ill. And that, that's a different pocket 
and um, one that will not be helped by the Affordable Act at all. And do you see any kind of reform with respect to the insurance industry that may address any of these issues? Well, that's a great question. One of the biggest problems is that to get paid for a visit, uh, a clinician has to give a diagnosis on the first visit, first session. And in my mind, a diagnostic moment is a precious, important moment in a person's life. Done well, a, a good diagnosis is reassuring. It uh, gives the person the sense of being understood. They're not uniquely damned. We know what to do, and we can develop together a plan of action. Accurate diagnosis is the first step towards a much better life. On the other hand, an inaccurate diagnosis can haunt a person forever, uh, very hard to get rid of, and can cause un unimaginable uh, hardship, not just in the medication side effects, but in the stigmatization, the labeling. Um, I get an email every week from someone whose life has been um, markedly impaired by the fact that they had an incorrect diagnosis that they can't escape. So I think that the moment of diagnosis should be tremendously um, treasured, and diagnoses should be withheld until they're pretty certain. They shouldn't be made after seven minutes. Unfortunately, the insurance industry as an effort to cut costs, requires a diagnosis in the U.S., not done other places. It would be much better if you didn't have to give a diagnosis for the first five or six visits because most people get better without one. And very often, you can avoid the medication, you can avoid the long-term commitment to their care, and all the hardships they'll get from unnecessary treatment. It would be much better if diagnosis was given more respect more time, and was a last resort for people who are watchful waiting and the natural powers of healing and resilience. When these don't work, the diagnosis is helpful, but we should let people who are coming in on the worst day of their life, give them some time to get better on their own, because very often they will. And finally, how much responsibility do individuals need to take in all of this? Because part of the reason doctors do what they do, and part of the reason that we see some of these things that you're talking about, is that because so many people go in there wanting the quick fix, wanting the pill, wanting the instant solution. The people need to realize that drug companies are not providing information in a neutral way to help individuals confront their illnesses. Drug companies are providing information in the most misleading way possible to increase their share of the uh, market and to get uh, people hooked on medicine. Don't trust any ad you ever see. Become an informed consumer. Learn a lot about um, psychiatric disorders that may apply to you. Be skeptical. If the glove doesn't fit, if the diagnosis doesn't fit, get second and third and fourth opinions. It's easy to start a medicine, it's easy to get a diagnosis, it's very hard to stop a medicine, very hard to get a, a diagnosis off your back. So I think it's very important for consumers to take an important role in, um, in understanding the problems and their own um, interaction with the system and not to be um, too gullible and too quick to take a free sample. Dr. Alan Francis, his book just out in paperback is Saving Normal. Doctor, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank, thank you for being so informed and for informing others. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.